John chapter 18, and we'll read starting in verse 28 to the end of the chapter. Please follow along. This is the most important thing we're going to do today. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again. Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. A short prayer for the Lord's help as we look at his word now. Father, what you command, we pray that you would give, that you would work according to the promise of your word in our hearts. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. title this morning is The King of Truth, and it really comes from these two main points of Pilate's interaction with Jesus. Are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? And then, if you notice in verse 38, the first part of it, As Jesus has explained why he came to this world, that he would come and testify to the truth and that everyone who is of the truth would listen to his voice, Pilate simply asks, what is truth? And do you notice that he doesn't stick around for an answer? At least John doesn't record that for us. I think he does that on purpose. I think if John knew as much as he did about this whole scenario, he certainly would have known what Jesus might have responded to Pilate in This question, what is truth? But it's very clear from the writing style, Pilate didn't give him a moment to hear an answer from him. Nevertheless, Jesus is, of course, the true king, the king of truth. If you have a bulletin this morning, there's an outline that might be helpful for you to know where we're going with this passage. But first things first, what this passage might call us to this morning is to tune our ears to hear the voice of the true king. 
in putting that as the first major point, anytime I say something musical, I'm always reminded about how little I know about music. So I had to look online, how do you actually tune an instrument? Because I know with the piano, you can't just necessarily do it. You have to have somebody come out and do the hard work of tuning a piano. But I do notice that Rick tunes his bass every week and that other instruments are tuned. And that when Rick comes up, you might have heard, uh, he was asking Ann to play certain notes on the piano so that he could check the tuning of his bass. That he would ask one note to be played over here. Sorry, Rick, you're a sermon illustration. You're not even here, are you? Don't tell him, okay, everybody? He would ask for a note to be played on the piano, and then he would play that note on the bass and see if it matched up with the note that he heard from the piano. The piano was the standard, right? The bass was what needed to be checked. And if it isn't checked, what you need to do, as far as I understand with string instruments, is tighten them either to the left or to the right, depending on whether it sounds too high for that note or too low for that note. And if that's completely wrong, please forgive me and just carry the illustration's weight by itself without the facts. If a note is not in tune, it ought not be played, right? The musician will certainly notice if that note is not in tune with the actual note. That is, if the instrument is not in tune with the proper note. And it could be especially disastrous if somebody who is unmusical like myself might notice something sounds wrong. That doesn't seem to be the true way that this song should be played, right? If something's out of tune, it certainly cannot do what it was intended to do. When it comes to the fact that Jesus is the true king, we say that phrase is full of so much meaning. But perhaps what we need to take as something to obey this morning is to see that our hearts are tuned to the truth of the king. And that our ears, more importantly, particularly in moments like right now, are tuned to hear the voice of the true king. I made yet another silly joke or reference to how every time I say this is the most important thing we're going to do earlier in Sunday school today. But it is the most important thing that we're going to do. Not the sermon, but the reading of God's word. And that in reading God's word, it is the test to see if our ears are truly tuned to the voice of the one speaking through it. Well, to come back to our passage then, a recap from last week, we looked at Jesus being arrested, he being the sanctified one set apart, and his disciples being the scattered ones, the ones that would see that opposition and run, including Peter, who at first was really ready to face that opposition head on, but had no idea how to do that according to the voice of the true king. He was corrected, and that in his correction, Rather than repenting, rather than seeking Christ in his heart, he started to run away. He denied Christ three times. The chief priests denied who Christ truly was. The sanctified one, the one that is purely set apart for this wonderful task, this dreadful task of being the sacrifice for his people. Ironically, You see the motivation of the chief priests in coming to Pilate at this time and in this way and and not even entering his own home is because they didn't want to be defiled. They didn't want to be too close to Gentiles. So there was a document called the Mishnah, which was an added list of rules that the Pharisees created um, to go alongside interpreting the law. It was kind of like a commentary. And, And it was held in higher esteem than a normal commentary is today because 
the Mishnah would point out things like, in order to maintain ritually clean, and in regards to the rules about being around Gentiles, you can't enter their homes, specifically. That's what the Mishnah had said. There's a pretty dreadful reason um, why they would say you shouldn't enter the home of a Gentile, and I'll leave you to look that up later. But Jesus is the sanctified one. He is the pure and spotless lamb that is about to be offered on the Passover. And ironically, as John likes to point out the irony in Jesus' story, these priests would turn away from the truly pure and spotless lamb of God in order to continue practicing their dead, cold religion. Their ears were not tuned to hear the voice of the true king. Truth is not important to those who are seeking to preserve something contrary to it. Truth is an opponent. Truth is an obstacle. And Jesus has already identified himself as the truth before chapter 18. If you remember John 14, 6, it's a great memory verse. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except for through me. See, Jesus hasn't just said, I've told the truth or I've done the truth. He says, I am the truth. That is not something you say if you're just a normal Bible teacher. That is something you say if you are, in fact, the holy, spotless Lamb of God. And what's interesting is he's already proclaimed this about himself to his disciples. He hasn't accepted this mantle of true king until now. And if you remember back to John chapter 6, there was a point where they wanted to take him by force to make him king. And he turned away from that. He didn't want to become a worldly king as everyone expected him to be. But here, he does actually call himself a king. He does affirm what Pilate said at a surprising moment. He accepts that mantle of king while he's on trial to be executed. And yet he's still doing the work that he came to do. He's still seeking to sanctify his people in the truth as he prayed in John 17, 17. The message of Jesus in this passage in verse 37, so clearly delivered to Pilate, you say that I am a king, he's agreeing with him. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is where it's important to point out the difference between hearing something and listening. If you're very quiet, you can hear a little buzz, a little buzz of feedback in the speaker's. Just a little bit, Trent. Don't worry. It's just very slight. It's normal. Hopefully that's not what you're listening to. Hopefully you're listening to my words, even though you might hear a little bit of feedback, which, again, is fine. It's not bothering me. It's a sermon illustration. Thank you. You could turn the feedback up. I'm just kidding. Hearing and listening are two different things, are they not? We can only truly listen to the voice of the true king if our ears are tuned to do so. The voice of the true king is heard by ears that are tuned to the truth. You could break down this passage in three different sections. The first one being 28 to 32, where Jesus is handed over. Then in 33 to 38, Jesus is looked over. And then in 38b to 40, Jesus is passed over. First, he's handed over. Verse 28 says that they led him to Pilate. And this is very interesting because they led Jesus to Pilate, but they don't go in with him to Pilate. Again, they don't want to be defiled by being in the house of a Gentile. But this word led in the Greek is the same kind of word you would use for leading an animal. Taking a rope around the 
head of a donkey or something. I don't know how you rope a donkey or whatever. You know, leading an animal. This is what they're using. This is the same language that's being used. And they're treating, again, the irony is just so potent in this passage. Because Jesus is the lamb being led off to slaughter. He is the Passover lamb. They don't even know they're doing this. Their standpoint on Jesus right now is that he needs to die. Their distortion of the truth is that God forbids us to put him to death, but God doesn't forbid Rome to put him to death. So we will avoid sinning by putting this man to death, but we will do so by letting someone else sin. As Jesus already talked about this before, not in the Gospel of John is it recorded, but in the Synoptic Gospels we do see Jesus saying, woe to you, to anyone who causes any little one to sin. He's talking about children, but I think it affects everybody too. You, you cause somebody else to sin, you're guilty of sin as well. They don't see that. They've rejected it. Matthew 23, verse 27, in the middle of Jesus' uh, final week in Jerusalem, he's, he's really speaking some very dreadful words to the Pharisees. And he says that they are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness because of their hypocrisy. And in their hypocrisy, Jesus is handed over. He's handed over to Pilate. If you don't know much about Pilate, here's a couple of interesting facts. He was sent to Jerusalem to be the governor in AD 26. So by this time, he's you know, coming up on almost 10 years-ish of um, being the governor here. And one of his first things that he did was to bring in an image of the emperor to the holy temple. The Jews did not like this. This became a real issue for them. They did not like Pilate for trying to do this. Pilate was even told by the emperor himself, hey, chill out, Pilate. Just let them have their temple. Don't mess with their religion. So Pilate's in a terrible situation to begin. He's already made his subjects mad at him, but then he's made the emperor. It's just the worst of middle management. Then, to make things better, he thought, apparently, he decided to try to bring some of the consecrated shields into the temple. The shields that were consecrated as, as devoted to the emperor. Obviously, they didn't like that again. At one point, I think it was actually the, this first incident, um, the Jews staged a sit-in, and he commanded that his soldiers would go out and tell all of them that if they don't move, they're going to cut their heads off. And the response was then to go from sitting in to laying down so that their necks were freely exposed so that he would have an easier time of doing it. Pilate's job was pretty hard. But he didn't make it easier for himself. Because then he took some of the treasure out of the temple to build an aqueduct. In response to the Jews' opposition there, he clubbed them to death. Anyone who opposed him. Lastly, as any governor was free to make any uh, images on the currency, the coins that were used to buy and sell things, he decided to put on the coins in Jerusalem the image of false deities. Again, making a very monotheistic people upset with him. Pilate does not set himself up for success. And yet here he's playing his cards very carefully. He won't just immediately do what's going to keep the Jews happy because he needs to remind them that he's in charge. And the death penalty, Rome did reserve for themselves. So different, the different provinces, the different countries that Rome uh, reigned over, they might have some freedom to enact their own laws, but they were not allowed to enact the death penalty. Jerusalem was under this same kind of situation. So for the priests to just bring Jesus up to Pilate and say, put him to death, would be kind of like making Pilate the servant of the chief priests. 
It would be kind of like saying, yeah, Rome is just here to do your bidding. So he's not going to rush into that. At the same time, he doesn't want the crowds to get too upset. And obviously, as we know how the story goes, they don't get any happier after this. He wants to keep the Jews happy, but not too happy. Jesus is handed over, Jesus is looked over, and Jesus is finally passed over. This is perhaps the most striking part of the story. In verse 38, the second part, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Notice that in John's record here, he doesn't even give the option of Barabbas. He just says, listen, I always release somebody at the Passover. I didn't actually look up why this was, but it was a custom that they had for these past few years. And he doesn't even say, I'll give you some options. Here we've got Jesus, the king of the Jews. Here we've got Barabbas, who's a robber. He's an insurrectionist. This is basically the difference between, again, Jesus and Osama bin Laden. He doesn't give the Osama option here, though. He just says, naturally, you want me to release to you the king of the Jews. I found nothing wrong with him. He's innocent, as far as I can tell. So I'll release him, right? They cried out again, verse 40, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. See, Pilate's ears are not tuned to hear the voice of the true king. The chief priest's ears are not tuned to hear the voice of the true king. And nor are the crowds. The crowds are looking for a hero. They're just as quick to pick Barabbas as they were in John 6 when they picked Christ to be their king. Let's go. He's fed 5,000 plus people. Let's go and make him our king. And if he doesn't want to be king, we'll just make him be king. And just as quickly as they accepted Jesus in that moment, so quickly they turn on him and accept a violent criminal instead. We'd rather let him be free to go off and do whatever he wants to do. He became the hero of their story. I mean, that is tragically ironic. But if ears are not tuned to hear and believe and receive and trust the voice of the true king, what can we expect? The kingdom that we live in devalues truth. It devalues truth. Look at these two groups again. Um, The Jews were distorting truth in order to protect their status. They were not practicers of true religion. They were hijackers of it. They were not ones who came and said, Lord, your will be done. They were ones that came to God and said, Lord, let my will be done. And let me see what you've got here to offer me. What can I pick and choose around your word and distort, just change a little bit so that it fits what I would like to see happen? Now, this is interesting because Jesus is a theological threat to them, right? He's coming and he is acting like the king of the Jews. He's fulfilling all these prophecies. He's growing the attention of the crowds towards him and away from the chief priests. And when the Jews come to Pilate and bring him to them, and Pilate says, what accusation do you bring against this man? They say, it's obvious He's doing evil. Why else would we bring him to you? What they're basically telling Pilate is that he's a threat to Rome. In another place, we see the chief priest saying, anyone who is for Jesus doesn't serve Caesar. They turn a theological issue, you ready, to a political issue. Whoops. 
Are we in danger of that at all in any way? No, because we know what the truth is. Yeah, that's true. We need to be careful about knowing truth and advancing truth. But it can get dangerous when we start to shift around in political and theological. Sometimes, and for many people you know, maybe even in some corners of your heart, you know that those words almost become synonymous and you can't tell which one is which. That's what happened with the Jews, this being the chief priests. You know, no, I don't know if I've talked about this. In regards to the mentioning of the Jews, you know, he doesn't always say the chief priests. I often inter- interchange Jews with chief priests so that we know who we're talking about. But there's a lot of accusation throughout history that John is being very anti-Semitic, as though he's saying every single Jew was against Jesus. Well, if you read the book, you know that's not true. I think, and it, this is a safe place, I'll just step away from the Bible, I think it's safe to say that John's motivation in continually referring to the Jews is this idea of irony that we've brought up already. It is ironic that the Jews, being God's chosen people, are the ones who are leading the charge to see him crucified, see the the Messiah that was sent to them. So just a side note there about him mentioning the Jews over and over again. Again, as they come to Pilate and they say, if this man had done nothing evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. This word evil is referring, and this might be obvious, but I'm going to point it out anyway, referring to something that is morally contrary to divine or human law. And this is the great problem of their distorting truth. Because what they're doing in condemning Jesus and sending him off to die is not, obviously, it's not according to the divine law that God has given them. It's according to the distortion of the divine law they've received. And when you distort divine law, it just simply becomes human law. Part of the distortion of this, not only because of who Jesus is as the Messiah, not only because of his mission, but also because of the innocence that he's already proclaimed to them. If you go back to verse 23, Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Last week we saw Jesus answering the questions and saying, Hey, look, you've heard me preach. Other people have heard me preach. Stop doing the wrong thing and interrogating the defendant. Interrogate witnesses like you're supposed to according to the law. And he gets hit for that. Now, we all know that when you resort to physical violence, it's because there's no more intellectual damage to be done, right? You have nothing intellectually when you resort to physical violence. It's it's very obvious from his encounter with the high priest, Jesus is innocent here but they're working off of a distorted view of the law. Let's think about Pilate again. The Jews are distorting the truth. Pilate is dismissing the truth. His goal is to, tr- is to shift the responsibility of truth. Okay, so, so if the Jews are distorting it, they're trying to shape it in their own image. They're trying to change the essence of the truth. Pilate is trying to dismiss it or to shift it away from himself. And of course, this most obviously from his uh, most famous phrase, uh, not phrase, but his action of washing his hands clean of Jesus at the end, which ultimately meant nothing. But he's trying to dismiss the truth. See, he wants to gain or maintain the position that he has as a governor. Of course, he has it, but he wants to gain the um, respect that he thinks he deserves in that position. That's his whole goal. So he asks questions like, are you a king? And what is truth? He is the interrogator in this as well. 
That's interesting because, again, we noted that he, he doesn't let Jesus actually answer that question of what is truth. And part of that, again, ironically, is interesting because Jesus himself is the truth. He's experienced the truth, though his ears are not tuned to hear the voice of the truth. There's a great quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, not to speak is to speak, and not to act is to act. Those who try to dismiss truth and shift the responsibility of it to others are trying to escape the weight through silence. This is why Pilate's first question is, why'd you bring him to me? You go ahead and take care of him. Judge him according to your law. And then finally, when he brings him out again in our passage, he says to the crowd, hey, you want me to release him, right? You want me to release him. He doesn't even say, I want to release him. He is dismissing all of his dealings with the one who is the truth. Now let's consider Barabbas. If the Jews are distorting the truth, if Pilate is dismissing the truth, then Barabbas is the picture of denouncing the truth. Barabbas doesn't have a single line in this story. But he is a clear picture of the result of everything that the high priests have started in their efforts to honor God's law and to do what is right, they ended up freeing a terrorist in the name of righteousness. Fascinating. This is the denouncing of truth. Is Barabbas our true king? It's a stupid question. Of course not. But they wouldn't take Jesus as the king of the Jews. Therefore, by omission, I suppose... They're naming Barabbas the king of the moment. Why is it that the crowds, remember, this is not just the chief priest saying, man, you know what? Jesus can do way more damage spiritually than Barabbas can physically in this world. It's not just them saying that. It's the crowds. It's the people whose homes are in danger of this guy who's a robber. He's, he's not just a guy who's like in a pickpocket. He's a guy who goes in and he's a, he probably is a murderer. I mean, he was up for crucifixion. This is not a cool dude. And yet Barabbas also, in a way, represents all of our sinful, rebellious desires being set free when we condemn Christ, when we dismiss, when we distort and ultimately denounce the truth. That is what the sinful heart wants. And that's why it wasn't Pilate's offer of like, well, you could release Barabbas if you wanted. It was the crowd who said, we'd rather have Barabbas. You look at the world today and you go, how did we get so messed up? How did things get so evil and dark? And how has truth been so distorted and dismissed and denounced? My friends, it has never been the fact, that, or never been the case, that the truth has been widely accepted. The truth has always been distorted, dismissed, denounced, and ultimately rejected. Because the kingdom we live in devalues truth. What is truth? Pilate doesn't even leave room for the answer. And were our sinful desires to be fulfilled, we would leave no room either. Whether we act, whenever rather, whenever we act contrary to the rule of Christ in our hearts, we are actually distorting, dismissing, and denouncing the truth of Christ. It's important for us in these passages particularly as we come closer and closer to the crucifixion of Christ to not simply look at it and say, Jesus was innocent. He didn't deserve this. That's all true. But to also notice the people around him. To notice that in Peter, I am a denier of Jesus. 
That in Judas, I see myself as a betrayer of Christ. In the chief priests, I see Jesus messing up the plans of my life. In Pilate, I see my desire to just not have to deal with all of this Bible stuff. To just, can I just focus on my day today? And in Barabbas, I see the ugliness of what my sin wants to accomplish in this world. To just be set free to do whatever my own desires might be. Ultimately, devaluing truth is devaluing Christ himself. Because he is the truth. We're there with the priests, with the governor, the crowds, and the criminal. Our ears would rather hear the call of the world that would pick and choose truth when it fits our desires than to do the hard work of having our ears tuned to the true voice of the king. And yet, Jesus' mission isn't over. This is a really interesting stopping point. If you just cut out the last three chapters of the Gospel of John, they took Barabbas and they condemned Jesus to die. The end. That would be an ending that would ultimately say God's plan failed. God's desire was not for our good, but for our loss. Can you imagine the father looking down on his son being so deeply rejected by the people he came to save? Can you imagine the father not saying, I'm done with all of this. This was a bad idea. I'm sending down that legion of angels. I'm just ending all of this right now. This is too much to bear. Could you send your child on a mission the way the Father sent Jesus? He didn't pull the plug. He didn't run in and call a timeout. Jesus is condemned to die as a, as a murderer in the place of a murderer. And yet at the cross, the true king became the substitute for those who rejected him. The king from another kingdom is not inactive in this world. And this is what the crowd saw in Jesus as they looked up at him. This is the man who fed 5,000. He healed hundreds of people. He preached great messages, but look at him now. He's arrested. He's on trial. He's going to be condemned. He never fulfilled all of our desires. He's so not what we want. The truth of Jesus' substitution, however, is the truly astounding thing for those whose ears are tuned to hear it. The innocent takes the place of the guilty. Do you see yourself this morning standing with Barabbas, the criminal released, in the dreadful injustice of that moment? Justice is also being satisfied because Barabbas is us. Barabbas is the one who's being given a substitute and being let free even though he's the criminal. That's where we stand because of what Christ has done. The action of denouncing the innocent one as worthy of execution is exactly what saved us. It was the pronouncement of your salvation. The truth of Jesus' mission is clear. He explained it to Pilate. I'm here to give the truth. I've come into this world to bear witness to the truth and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. If truth is the value of your heart, you listen to the voice of Christ. And that is not just to hear it, that is to respond obediently to it. D.A. Carson, in, this in regards to this passage, writes that Jesus' mission was to disclose the truth of God. And it was the principal way of making subjects 
or exercising his saving kingship. And even in that moment with Pilate, he's still working out his mission. He's still calling Pilate to become a subject of his kingdom, to receive not only uh, this this matter of, of position of being a part of God's kingdom, but to receive the saving work of Christ's kingship. The truth of Jesus' mission is clear. His substitution is astounding in this passage. And then the truth of Christ's innocence is vindicated here. The priests that needed him gone so badly so that they could eat the Passover in peace with a clear conscience are unjustly slaughtering the innocent Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John told us earlier. John the Baptist. Now in their words they say it is not lawful. And yet in those words the law is fulfilled the whole law and the prophets that amount to the ministry of Jesus. Through the rejection of Christ, we see the glory of Christ being the true sovereign over all things, even in this moment where he is in chains. To reject Christ is a rejection of a truth, and yet it's a mysterious step that God allows us to take so that we can discover the glory of Christ. Why is it, Christian, that when you became a believer, you didn't instantly become sinless and never have a temptation to sin ever again? Why is it that the God who could do anything didn't just simply remove that option from your mind? It was so that you could see the glory of Christ all the more clearly, such that every time you come to him in repentance and faith, say, Lord, forgive me, I can't believe I said, did, thought, whatever that was. That every time he forgives with the fresh forgiveness that he gave you at the moment of your conversion. It was ever new. His mercies are new every morning. Tune your ears to hear and believe the truth of Christ. Lastly, discern your dealings in this world as a subject of the true kingdom. Because that's what we are. If our ears are tuned to hear the true voice of the true king, then that has made us a subject of the true kingdom. We've subjected our lives to him, submitted our lives to him. We need to walk in light of that truth. Pilate thought that Jesus was no threat to Rome. He only saw Jesus as a threat to his personal life, his personal comfort and convenience. But the truth is is that Jesus and his kingdom is a threat to all who would turn from truth, all who would turn from justice, all that would seek their own advancement. Yeah, Jesus' kingdom does come, but it doesn't come with the weapons of this world. It comes with the weapon of the truth. Sometimes we need that weapon to do some surgery on our hearts. Subjects or citizens of the true kingdom must examine their lives and pursue holiness in any way of our lives that is not subject to the true king. Anything that doesn't match up. Not the little things that we say, oh, just let that be. It's not that big of a deal. Christ didn't die for part of our lives. He died to make us in our entirety a living sacrifice to him. So how does this chapter speak to your dealings in the world? I have four things for you before we close. First of all, if we are a subject to the voice of the truth, we must look to the hope of a kingdom that's not of this world. That's ultimately where truth will set our gaze. Truth will not allow us to think that I could get things sorted out here to the way I'd like them to be. Maybe if I make sure to pray this kind of way or to do this kind of Bible study or to perform certain good deeds, 
then maybe I could set my hope on this life. This is not a conversation you literally have with yourself. But it is the, the common ground that that old nature and that new nature, are tr- well, not the new nature, but the old nature is trying to pull the new nature to. Hey, maybe we can just add Jesus into the mix of what we're trying to do here. If we're subject to the voice of the truth, we must look to the hope of a kingdom not of this world. This is what Jesus said. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not of this world. What does that mean for you as you pursue truth, as you listen for truth? We need to consider that in everything we interact with in this life. The things that disappoint us, the things that tear us down, the things that seemingly crush us. The pressures of this world are enough to bring anyone down. But if we can set our hearts, our hope, on a kingdom that's not of this world, we'll find the power of the voice of the true king in our lives. Secondly, if we're subject to the voice of the true king, we must understand all trials in light of the trial of the true king. That is not to say that when you face a trial in this life, that you are becoming the substitutionary lamb for somebody else. That's not what we need to take from this. Jesus has done that on your behalf. But we should recognize that the goal of trials in your life is not so that you can be vindicated in that moment, but that vindication will come later. You can see this in the book of Revelation when the, the crowds of people are crying out to the Lord, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, until you bring justice on the earth? If we're subject to the voice of truth, we must understand all the trials that we face in light of the trial of the true king. And know that the trials are not there as a side road from what God wanted us to do or wanted us to experience or his perfect plan, but the trials are woven into his perfect plan, just as they were for our Savior. Thirdly, if we are subject to the voice of truth, we must seek the purifying work of the true king in our hearts. Because in our hearts lies that ability to distort, dismiss, or denounce the truth. If we're subject to the voice of truth, we have to seek his work to purify our hearts, to do what he says about truth. In John 8, 32, Jesus says that the truth will set you free. That is the sanctifying or purifying or making us more holy work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And that happens through subjecting ourselves to the voice of truth. Last one. If we're subject to the voice of truth, we must testify to the truth and and the glory of the king who will return to this world. See, when Jesus talks about my kingdom is not of this world, he's not saying, yeah, I just kind of got mixed up in something I didn't belong in or that this is the end of the road for me and there's nothing that can be done about it. One day, that kingdom and the kingdom of this world are going to intersect and it is going to be glorious. It's going to be the best thing ever for some. Jesus came, he says, he was born for the purpose of bearing witness to the truth testifying to the truth. And that is why you are here, Christian. That is why he doesn't just beam you straight up into heaven. You have a mission to fulfill. To testify to the truth of those who are distorting it, who are dismissing it, and who are even denouncing the truth. And to do so in a Christ-like way. It's challenging. It's not going to be easy. We don't have to do it alone. 
God's made us to be the church, right? The body of Christ, unified in this purpose. Don't live your Christian life by yourself. There are times where we're going to get out of tune. And we might need to look to somebody else to help us find in God's word where we can tune our hearts to hear his truth. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that in your goodness, you did not put a stop to the trial of our Savior, but that through that trial, the great glory of his salvation was accomplished. Lord, truth is so shrouded by the world in our lives. It is very hard for us at times to discern it, so we choose to dismiss it. We choose to distort it. We choose to denounce it. Lord, forgive us in our hearts where we would seek to preserve something that is not of you, that is of our own kingdom. Lord, let us be subjects to the true king, subjects of the true kingdom, so that your glory might be known in all the earth. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.